0: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 78. This week's feature review, Gaming on a Budget. Also, our At the Table has us returning back to Dexcon 18, in which Anthony talks about St. Petersburg, I talk about Samurai Spirit, and Dave talks about Dominant Species. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony.
1: This is Drew. This is Dave.
0: Hey, Dave! Dave's back!
1: Uh, Dave! Played with you in a while. Yeah, last time we played La Isla and Viticulture, that was good times. Oh man, it sure was. (laughs) <laughs> well, haven't chatted with anyone
2: for
0: a while, so thanks for joining us. Yeah, we actually got Dave back on the podcast. Everyone really liked having him on. We're so glad to have him back here this week. We'll be talking about Dexcon 18. Dave was able to join us. And Drew has left the rondelle temporarily <laughs> so that he could join us for the episode. So we got him back on with us. Daniel is still out celebrating, as he does, but... Not to worry. As always, he has nominated and volunteered Anthony for his duties this week.
3: Yes. So we should all thank Daniel from the bottom
2: and deepest part of our hearts for volunteering me again. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? We got to make Daniel make up for this by forcing him to drive us around Indianapolis to Gen Con.
0: Done. We'll designate him the driver.
2: (laughs) Double done. (laughs) Done.
0: All right, so now that we got the entire crew for you here this week, we want to jump into our episode, let you know about everything that happened on Dexcon 18, bring you up to date on news, our feature review this week, Gamer FAQ, How to Game on a Budget. We'll talk about some great games that we were able to get to the table, including Dominant Species, St. Petersburg, and Samurai Spirit, but let's get on to the news. Shout it from the tabletops. (laughs) Sir, you're going to need to get down from there.
2: Obviously, this is Spiel des Jar week. Big announcements. And the Spiel des Jar is actually three awards, as you know, the Kinderspiel and the Kennerspiel and the Spiel des Jar for different ages. Big surprise. To me, it was a surprise that the winner of the Spiel des Jar for 2015 was Colt Express, Christoph Rambeau. One of the other three games nominated was Machi Coro, And a few months ago, I would have said that was a shoe-in. What happened to it? Why didn't it win?
3: I think people played it a lot and realized <laughs> that the base game was not Spiel des Jahres worthy. With the expansions, it's a lot better game. It just doesn't have the replayability. Like it's, didn't we when we talked about it in our review. It was almost borderline solvable. Like there's best actions at
2: any point in time. Yeah. Despite the dice, you wonder now, now that we look back in hindsight, how did it even make the the short list of nominations?
0: Well, and the bigger question was the other nominee was the game, which had <sighs> this really ominous kind of. Little cover on it, and yet it was a simple deck of cards, and it had some mechanics from Hanabi, and it seems like a fine little game, but. You know, at this level, this is shocking. I, I can't believe that there weren't better games out there this year. So, yeah, Cult Express One, an AmeriClash game with a cardboard train, which is awesome, yeah, but weird. Cool.
2: But I'd like to see it, like to try it out. I mean, obviously, these are very Euro European designers and publishers, but all these games are coming to America. So we'll get a chance to try it out. Kinderspiel was Spinderella. Which, yes, does sound like a kid's game. And then the Kenner Spiel was Broom Service. Andreas uh, Pelikan, Austrian, I hope I'm pronouncing it, is an Austrian designer. Broom Service has been accused of being a rehash of an earlier game. It was Pelikan's 2008 game, Witch's Brew, which was a Spiel des Jahres nominee back then. Yes. Should an award this prestigious reward just a, a basically an implementation, or should it focus more on innovation? There's nothing innovative about Broom Service. It's just, oh, I finally figured out how to do witches' Brew, and I'll, I'll just ch- make some changes and we'll call it Broom Service. Yeah, I mean,
3: if that's the case, I would say no, because there are so many good games out there, like so many to choose from. You, why would you need to pick one? No matter how good it is, it might be amazing. I haven't played it. But regardless of that, there are other options. So it, it doesn't we- actually make sense to me to give an award like this to a game. That's basically already been out there in some form or another yeah. when you could award somebody who built something new or if not new, like at least iterative, you know, something that brings something new to the table.
2: Fresh. Yeah. Fresh. That's what you want to reward with your award.
0: Is it possible that Origins Awards Committee jumped in here, <laughs> knocked out the Spiel des <laughs> Yaris judges and kind of like once again did their really bad magic selection <laughs> and uh, just poor. randomly threw some games in there?
2: Or GTS. We pick <laughs> on those guys, but man, those awards were bad.
3: They're
0: bad. <laughs>
2: well, you know, it's not an award if there isn't some controversy about the picks. So. Next bit of news, it's taken Hasbro seven years now to get a studio to commit to making a Monopoly film. Lionsgate supposedly is going to make it. Supposedly they're going to do it. And from what I read, it the story is about a kid who lives on Baltic Avenue seeking to make his fortune, I assume, on the boardwalk. But not Baltic. yeah now will it Will this do you think this kind of movie i mean there's no clue what it's going to be like but you know the game monopoly is this going to be a good cult film like clue or is it going to be another battleship that's Mm -hmm. that's my big question even without knowing the story i mean what can they do with this game it's just like what could you do with battleship Uh, well turned out nothing (laughs) yeah well (laughs) aliens drew aliens
0: (laughs) because of reasons yeah <laughs> yes
2: man aliens. oh they have aliens and board you know what the sad thing is i've been to atlantic city a number of times there's an obscene income gap in the real atlantic city so i think they could do a real serious film between the baltic avenues and the boardwalks
3: yeah, it depends on what kind of tone they go for if they go for the original tone of the game or like some kind of social commentary you could actually do something relatively interesting. Oh, the landlord game, yeah. Yeah. Or if they go fun kitty game where everybody flips the board after three hours, it could be a pretty
2: silly, stupid children's movie. So we'll see which direction they want. Yeah, work. imagine the movie lasts as long as a typical game of Monopoly. <laughs> Ouch. Asthma Day, I'm predicting they're going to be the next Hasbro. They're going to be giants. They're not just picking up publishers, buying up publishers, they're buying up rights to specific games. And they got spotted. They bought the rights to spot it. You see that every everywhere you go. Uh, I live in Vermont. There's this little country store way out in the middle of nowhere. They have spot it. it it's just everywhere you turn.
3: My son has like three
2: different versions of it. Oh so I got these tins all over the house. But Asmodee, it was smart doing that. Um, in fact, at, at one point, there were three different companies dividing up the international rights. But now Asmodee has it for the whole world. I've been reading... A lot about game rights. And I'm wondering if this is the new battleground for the hobby. Who has the rights to a game? I mean, I've been reading about designers who aren't getting compensated enough for selling the rights. There's fights between publishers over who owns the rights to games.
0: I think what you were saying about the Monopoly movie, Drew, it's not even about the game. It's about the IP people yeah. want these IPs. These IPs are popular. You can reskin a game a thousand times. You can bring out different versions of a game, but once it has an established brand like like we talked about this previously like the Catan movie, what's it going to be about doesn't matter. People know the word Catan, people know the word Monopoly, they'll come out and they'll be disappointed like they were with Battleship. So it's really not about the substance or the mechanics. It's honestly just about the IP, whereas the Clue movie was about them making a good movie that just happened to be about Clue. Yeah.
2: So what do you think the Spotted movie is going to be like? (laughs) That's going to be good. Fever dream. Oh, my God. And uh, finally, I know I have one other interesting bit of news. Oh, there's going to be – in fact, as Anthony, uh, you told me earlier, there's already the start of a redesign for Board Game Geek. That's the go-to place for people really heavily in the board games. They're promising a big redesign. They're, They're teasing it. And Anthony, you said they've already made some changes.
3: Yeah, I mean, at some point in the last few months, they rolled out updates to the marketplace. To my knowledge, and I don't spend nearly as much time on that site as a lot of people... That's the only part they've really fully updated, along with the, the Board Game Geek store. But it's significantly different than the rest of the website. When you click on that market, it's, you're in a completely different website. Yeah,
2: I think they're just going to try to redesign little bits and pieces at a time. The geek needs to update, definitely. Everybody knows it. Even if you love the geek, you still want to see some changes. My question to you guys is, would a redesign be a good thing, or would it allow in too many normal people? <laughs> you would really want normal people. Lower
3: that bar of entry a couple notches.
2: Exactly. Um, but I'll believe it when I see it. But right now, I'm still a happy uh, user of Board Game Geek as you guys are too. And that is all the news we have from the tabletop.
0: All right. Thank you, Drew. And now at the table with BGA. All right. So at our table this week, our table was not local. Our table was at DexCon 18 at Morristown, New Jersey. We've been talking about this for weeks. We got a chance to get down there. We gamed like crazy. And we wanted to talk to you about some of the great games and some of the fun that we had at this great convention that was thrown together by Double Exposure. Once again, an outstanding job. Thank you, Vinny, Mark, Avi, Molly. Everyone is part of the crew. And that's pretty much the really challenging part because there is so many great people that add and participate and volunteer and are game masters here that it would honestly take an hour podcast to name everybody and thank them for their support and really kind of making a welcome and opening environment for gamers, LARPers, RPGers. It was just an outstanding time. Thank you again and uh, we look forward to the next convention. So now, since this was a gaming convention and it was all about board games and we got some great games and Dave was able to join us for this convention, we wanted to talk about some of the games that we had a chance to play. We actually were able to sign up for some contests, some tournaments, but when it came down to it, we got to play some outstanding games and uh, Anthony's going to start us off on one of those games. Anthony?
3: All right, cool. So the one of the games that I was most interested in and actually all the games I played, I enjoyed a lot which is always a nice feeling, not having that one dud in the middle of the group there. But this is one of the first games we played, and it was actually one of the events, the convention, so somebody was kind of there on hand to teach the game to us and make sure we knew how to play and everything, which is always fun. Nobody's stumbling through the rules, and you know you're getting it right the first time. And that was St. Petersburg. Now, we did not play the new version, the second edition, although there was a, a copy of that there. So we did get to look and see the differences. This was the first edition of the game, and that means it had a smaller board. There was less going on. But the the game itself was actually very solid. I was very intrigued by it. Um, the engine-building mechanics of it and the way you buy the cards and generate income over the course of the game was very interesting to me. I didn't quite pick up on everything effectively until about halfway through the game which was much too late to make a run at winning said game but it's always a good sign when you can screw up half your strategy and still have fun with all of it and want to play it again so core mechanics of the game are you have this board on which there are four stacks of cards and then 16 slots for those cards and every turn you're gonna turn up one of those stacks of cards and fill up a certain number of those spaces as cards that are available to buy. The The different kinds of cards, you have workers, buildings, nobles, and then upgrades for all three. And the goal of this is to generate enough money with the cards you purchase to be able to keep buying things because cash flow is a major issue and then produce victory points with those cards over the course of the game. There are some cards that will give you victory points every turn. So if it's the building turn out of round two, the end of that, All of your buildings have victory points on them. You're going to score those. And then there's a couple other ways to score as well. You can get different types of cards that'll maybe cash in all of your money for victory points because money is usually worth nothing. It's like 10 to 1 ratio. Or you can get a bunch of nobles. And the more variety of nobles you get, the more points you get. It scales up in kind of that logarithmic sense in that, you know, one is 1.2 is three points, three is five points, and these probably aren't the right numbers, but you get the right idea. Basically, once you get five to six nobles, you're starting to pull in a decent amount of points. The game actually went relatively quickly from what the teachers of it told us. We finished after maybe three or four rounds because we emptied the blue deck, and once you empty any of the decks, the game is over. But part of that, too, is because at any given point, only a certain number of cards are going to come out for that particular stack because the leftover cards from the previous bidding round stay out. So if people decide they don't want any more workers and there are five still on the board, only three buildings are going to come out. And as a result, things can clear out a little quicker in one deck than another based on everybody's strategies. Uh, It was very interesting. We played with four players. It went relatively quickly, uh, very smooth, even with the little bit of AP trying to figure out how your engine's coming together. I didn't have a ton of issues even later in the game when I knew what I was doing, (laughs) figuring out which thing would be the best option for me. A lot of it just depends on what people in front of you buy and then at... Each point, like who goes first for each particular deck, because that will rotate. Which there's a whole nother meta game in there in terms of what you're going to leave on the board and what you're going to let people buy. Very intriguing, very fun. And from everything I've heard, the second edition ramps that up to the next level by adding a fifth deck of cards and another entirely different mechanic, plus an option for a fifth player. So I'm actually really excited to try the second edition. But I did enjoy the first edition as well, so I would totally play this again.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed playing this game. I love tableau building. I love that Marcus Place element to it. And this idea of when to buy and what to buy, because if you buy multiples of a card, they're cheaper. If you buy a diversity of cards, you're able to benefit off other possible buildings and upgrades throughout the game And there is some very elegant strategy to it. If you buy too much, you're giving your opponent an opportunity to buy cards. But if you buy too little sometimes, it won't come around to you. It's simple. It's fun. It's elegant. And I don't mean simple in a bad way. I mean simple as far as just the cleanest and elegant nature of this game. And I really enjoyed this game quite a lot. And as Anthony said the second edition looks beautiful it adds the marketplace to it. I don't know if the game if it makes the game better. I know it has a Tom Vassil card in it as the tax man, but beyond <laughs> that I don't know much more beyond that as far as the game's concerned, but I'm absolutely looking forward to playing the second edition. That's now on my hit list and I will be purchasing first and maybe second edition because I really did enjoy this game that much. Dave, have you played this? Uh, I played
1: it once uh, about six months ago or a year ago. I, just, I thought it was all right. Like, I, I it didn't really excite me in a big way, but I could see where, yeah, it's right up my alley as a like euro game. I would need to play it some more to get the hang of how everything works. Sure. But the, and and the nobleman scoring is is a really big factor of your success in that game.
3: Yeah, definitely. Like yeah. like I said before, I didn't quite catch on I mean like I knew what I was supposed to do but I didn't quite get the feel of how the scoring would work out until a little too late Chris seemed to pick it up pretty quickly I think you won this game actually yeah and it really is all about the nobles and you can take cards into your hand too and save them for later and that was huge Because you can't always afford everything. You don't have enough cash. So saving those things and then chaining them out at the right times, that's how you win that game. Two or three good plays probably are necessary to get a good feel for it.
0: Anthony, you still did very well at the game. And you and I were both brand new players. And there was two veterans playing with us. And we held our own in the game. I mean, I pulled out the win. But you were not far behind on that.
3: No, no. I think I was, I think, third, but by a point or two. So I was proud of my position. Yeah. But um, I knew I could have done better, which is the mark of a good euro game when afterwards you're thinking through like okay so if i'd done this instead of this and carried this three and divided <laughs> by two and bought these cards but not spent all the money in the second round so yeah i definitely want to take another crack at that puzzle
0: yeah and thanks to everyone who sat down and taught us and kind of got us through the process we really do appreciate that all right so just one more game i wanted to talk about real quick uh
3: this is one that came in the mail a few weeks ago and it's on kickstarter right now so these guys sent us a pre-production copy so this isn't really a review this is more of a preview based on what we saw of kind of this uh production quality prototype um the game is called san ni ichi and it is a relatively quick um trick-taking style card game and the goal of it is that you're all ninjas and you're trying to deal the most damage to other players so um The actual core mechanics of the game revolve around the three elements um, and various numbers on these cards, the elements being wood, fire, and water. So much like rock, paper, scissors, each one can override another one. Uh, So as you play cards, you have to play one that can go over the top of another. So if you have a water card down, you're going to have to play the uh, wood card on top of that. So the actual gameplay is very, very simple. This game took like 10 minutes to play. Um, deal out the cards based on the number of players. It varies depending on how many people are playing. And then each person will play a card during the selection phase, uh, face down. You all flip them up. And then you place that card into a combat pile of your choice, as long as you can place it somewhere. So you can place it on yourself if it benefits you. You can place it on another player if it hurts them, of course. And uh, it has some interesting mechanics when you play it on yourself, because if somebody else doesn't have a pile for example you can move your pile to them when you play it on yourself uh that alone all those basic mechanics very simple but it does throw a couple wrenches into the game with weapons uh these weapons can kind of um mess things up a little bit throw things off uh kind of you can block things from hitting you you can deal extra damage to somebody else there's some interesting mechanics there um we when we played through it the first couple times um the weapons definitely had a huge impact on how the game played out, so it'll be interesting to see how the final version plays, because I know when I talked to these guys, they said that there were some changes from the version we had, which is why I'm not going to, like, render judgment on this one, um, but it was an interesting little game, the artwork was pretty cool, I know Daniel was very excited, um, to get this one out a couple more times, even if I, uh, it takes me some time to find the one card I dropped under my couch, um, so it'll be interesting to see how it goes. The The game right now is on
0: Kickstarter. You've got about a week and a half left. So Dave, what did you play during Dexcon you want to talk about?
1: played several games, but the game that I'm going to talk about now is Dominant Species. Okay. Dominant Species is pretty much my favorite game going right now. Like I just learned how to play it a month ago, and I'm, I'm hopelessly enamored with this game. I'm infatuated with it. I think about it all the time. Um, it's an epic epic board game experience and there's there's a lot of take that there's a lot of there's, there's a tremendous amount of player interaction which you don't see in uh, most euro games, which is mostly what I play. But like dominant species has such a, an awesome design as far as the mechanics of the game and the, the way that they all work together, all the actions you can do, like they make thematic sense. There's like a narrative being played out across the board as the game goes on. And it it takes such a long time to play the game. It's like a four or five hour game. So you need to have a big chunk of time allotted and all the players need to understand like this is a big investment of time. But it it doesn't feel like a long time when you're playing a game. I find it extremely stimulating. I love the game. Uh, So basically you're combining several ideas from other games such as worker placement that you would see like in a stone age and, and area majority scoring like from El Grande and then there's a, there's this little bit of an element of like a robo rally where you're programming your actions because there's so many actions that happen each round there's 12 different actions you can do on your turn that you can choose from they happen in the same sequence every round so there's like a, this large region on the top right corner of the board where you can place action pawns to and then once you place your pawn there other people can't go there and they get resolved in this particular sequence that happens every round and then by the time you get to the end of all those, sec- those actions the board has changed very much you have to anticipate what the other players are going to do and the way you have all of your VCs on the board deployed is going to change by the time the last couple actions come around so I mean there's a, there's a lot of mean it's a mean and nasty game. It's almost like a war game, but so, so each of the players assumed the role of like a different group of animals. so so I was playing as the reptiles, and Mike was playing as like the amphibians, and Chris was playing as the birds. Anthony was um, insects, I believe, and then we had Lisa was playing the mammals. So it was a great couple we met from upstate New York that played with us hey guys and you have this group of animals and this ice age is coming and there is there's all kinds of different terrain type hexes on the board and when the game comes to a close you want to have been the most successful animal at adapting to the environment and flourishing and like populating the board better than the other animals and and surviving all kinds of events that happen and and beating up on the other animals so you can actually attack and and remove other players pieces from the board you can control this glacier that comes and just wrecks things once around there's a, just yet another awesome layer that happens in the game where there's these really powerful event cards that you can choose that are just overpowered like some of them are just incredibly powerful there's like a volcano you can like destroy all kinds of animals on the board so the strategic type of situation that's happening on the board is very t- dynamic and you have to be paying close attention to what the other players are doing and, and you have to try to make a strategy but yet there's chaos because it's like a bunch of other players doing t- t- have to have their own agenda I just find it so stimulating and exciting I mean you can get some serious analysis paralysis in this game I'm, I'm not going to lie and it, it is a challenge to get it to the table because of the massive time investment. It's a, it's an epic game. It's not your everyday, you know, run of the mill game. And I just love it. It's I enjoy it. And I I actually played horrible when we played, and, and uh, I made some poor choices. And and you could fall behind that game, and it's 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 a little bit punishing. It's it's hard to claw your way back. But I still. Just enjoy uh, looking at the situation on the board and figuring out what the other players are doing, and trying to f- uh, figure out what are the best actions I can do to, to help me succeed. It's, I find it very challenging, and it's awesome. And the, you know, the different actions you can do in the game are really exciting. You can add new species to the board. You can do migration where you're moving around. A big part of the game also is you can make your animal more adaptable to the environment on the board, and but yet you can also change the elements on in the board that will make it better for your animal to flourish and, and make it harder for other animals to, to flourish. So figure out how to do the best combination of actions and withstand all the stampeding attacks from all the other animals. It's I just think it's so much fun.
3: Yeah, this was... A surprising one for me because, honestly, I don't generally like area control games where you kind of tear down stuff people are building. I don't generally like programming style games. So I didn't think I would love it, but I knew it was a good game. But I actually really enjoyed this a lot. And I can tell because thinking back on it, I can think of multiple points throughout the four hours we were playing it when specific things happened that were just a lot of fun. I remember at the very beginning of the game, I pulled up a card and it said, Something like choose a tile and remove all of different types of food around it except for one, and I was like, should I do this one or this other one that gives me points? And, you know, they're like, well, the spirit of the game is to hurt people, so let's go for it. And it like destroyed everybody's strategy in the first round.
0: Yeah, way to blight um, us, Anthony. Yeah,
3: it was great. <laughs> Scrambled everything off the bat.
1: Yeah, you also um, you also hit everybody with the catastrophe too. Yeah,
3: like
1: that's right. The- <laughs>
0: Well, he had that some was... people, he had somebody with a catastrophe.
1: That was more
3: defensive, though, because I was super clustered in like four tiles, and sure. it was on the board, and I knew that if I left it there, someone was going to yeah. blow me up.
0: There's only so many places where you can throw down those catastrophes, and there's a lot of catastrophes throughout that game. There's one particular
3: card named Catastrophe. Yeah, you remember it, Chris, unless you're you know, ing on that one. When I, when I to... <laughs>
0: well, between the catastrophes and massive ice flows that Dave threw at me and 15 other things that happened...
3: Yeah, we really picked on you. I, I know, know
0: the birds. I, I, I mean, I had my my penguins were holding out on the icebergs, but that was about it. But uh, you know, as we wrapped a, we wrapped the game up, at least towards the end, they were kind of piling together for this world domination thing. But yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely a Euro game for sure. You look at this game, and it reminds you of the cones of Dunshire. You have these little cones <laughs> and these little pieces, and it's it's got this very kind of analytical gmt type of game with a million little bits so it's euro through and through and yet it has a lot of that americ elements you're attacking each other the entire time pretty much and as your species evolves and expands it, it's going to ruin it for other species so it makes complete sense the game plays well and despite the four hour game time It does keep you engaged throughout. I don't don't think there was a moment in the game where I was like, there's not something for me to calculate here or think about or plan. And I think you know what Anthony was saying too, I think what really works for me with this game is the amount of options that you can choose for your programming. It's not like five or six things. I think it's like 10 or 12 things. There's just so many different things that you can pick. And then based upon where you pick them on that line – it's, it makes a big difference.
1: There's a lot of things going on in this game. There's different ways you can score points. Like you could try to focus on building up a bunch of cubes on the growing glacier, and, and that can add up to a lot of points as the game progresses near the end. You can, get, you can sc- score a lot of points uh, having the most animals on the glacier. And the, the game suffers a little bit because there's a gang up on the leader type of thing that happens, and that, that I believe that pretty much happens with every area majority control mm-hmm. type of game it including does yeah. El grande so that's what i believe why you were getting picked on for most of the time with the birds that'll teach you me would... for leading <laughs> but yeah i understand as you get to a higher level of competition and let's say el grande is similar to sure. type of area majority game you don't want to go jump out to a big lead like it's like almost one of the best strategies is to try to build up yourself up and get yourself into a position and then take the lead like later in the game because if mm-hmm. you take the lead too early like people will just be attacking you too much
0: yeah i think i, I did that in, in a recent belfort game where i was just building up my economy and purchasing buildings and then i just jumped at the end yeah so yeah area controllers are like that a lot so so the game that i got in this week was samurai spirit now this is from the designer and tom who developed ghost stories and very similar to this so this is the seven samurai defending the village against all the marauders that are coming in and attacking it's a co-op game and it's actually a very simple co-op game i think that's the one thing i was really surprised by with this game that i expected it to be a little more complex and a little more strategic like ghost stories but the game itself is pretty simple. You get one of the Samurais and on your turn you'll flip over a card and one of these attackers comes to the village. And you basically have two options. You can either fight them and you have a number on the right side of your card that shows the amount of I guess, attack value that you have. And each of the cards that are coming in have a certain number. So if a three, a four, and a two come there, then now you have a nine attack on that card. Each card has a certain kind of like explosive value where their special ability kind of kicks in and knocks out some of these characters. So you want to hit the exact number, but you don't want to go over because if you go over, you're knocked out. Now, on the other side of the card is basically your mission goals. You want to be able to defend yourself, defend the village, and defend the families in the village. So you have these three spots. So some of the cards that come out will actually have these icons. So if you have the opportunity, instead of trying to fight them on the right, you want to put them on the left so you can kind of meet your mission goals. Once you met your mission goals, you're pretty much done. And at that point, you can pass... Unless it's strategic to kind of help out your other samurai that are defending the village. Now, other than this kind of big card and the deck of cards that come with the attackers, there's not too much else to the game. You get a meeple to kind of gore tracker on your individual card. And then there is like, a, I would say about a 4x4 little chipboard that's the village. And in the village, it has these little fences and it has three families, and I think it has six houses on there. So when the Marauders kind of come out, they have an icon. some of them have an icon on their cards that show what will happen if they fight you and they continue to be the character that is showing. So every time a new Marauder comes out, he covers up the other one's effect. So they can injure you, and if they injure you twice, you flip over, and now you go into your beast form. So for my character, he turned into a tiger, and he had a double ability, which is awesome. But if he gets two more hits after that, he's dead. And if he's if he dies, or if any of the characters in the game dies that are defending the village, you lose. Now, you also lose if three families get knocked out or if six of the buildings get knocked out. So it's very, very important to defend the families and the first time we played, it was kind of a learning game and we lost and then we played for real and we won pretty easily. And what was really funny was at a certain point, we realized that we could just all pass, which would mean that a family would die because someone didn't defend the family. But if we continued, is there was a possibility that someone would be knocked out and we would lose the game. So we were like – we kind of took a hard vote. And we decided to all pass and win the game. And the person, the game master, who was teaching the game, she was like, you won. But that was a very, very dark victory. (laughs) So it's a light co-op game. It's a fun game. But honestly, for me, this is a co-op that's a filler. So I don't know if we've had something like this before. If you have a time in which you need to fill, this kind of fits the mark. But beyond that, this game really doesn't have much more to offer than that. So... It's just barely a play.
3: It's a little disappointing. This is a game I mentioned a few times in my acquisition disorders, almost 100% because of the theme and then a little bit because of the designer. I wanted it to be awesome, but when I saw how small the box was and I saw how little was in there, and I'm not surprised at all that it's a little lighter and kind of thin and probably a little too easy. But still, would have been cool to get a ghost story-sized
0: co-op about the Seven Samurai story. That would exactly. be fantastic. Yeah, and I was and maybe part of it was my expectations. I mean, the gameplay is incredibly quick once you know how to play it, which is once again, it's a very simple game, so you can kind of blow through it in about 15 minutes. It's just three rounds that you have to survive. So, it's a fine filler, so it's I recommend to play, but it's nothing as far as ghost stories is concerned. All right, so that's everything for our at the table at Dexcon
1: 18. <laughs>
0: And now, BGA's feature review. All right, for this week's feature review, we wanted to talk to you about gaming on a budget. So, for this week, our gamer frequently asked questions how to game on a budget. And we want to talk about some unique ways that each of us are able to get games to the table, or play brand new games, or find classic hard to find games, and are able to experience all these different designers' masterpieces. and yet, at the same time, keep a few bucks left over in your pocket. So, guys, let's talk about gaming on a budget. Anthony, what about you? How are you able to get all this gaming in on a limited budget? What what tricks and tips do you have?
3: Well, I set a budget, and then I go way over it,
0: <laughs> and then I apologize to my wife. All so. right, so that's everything for this week. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, there's plenty of tricks, but the problem with for me is that if it's cheap right is buy more of them. Um, <laughs> That's right. The probably the top top ones for me at least are the Barnes and Noble discount sales. Okay. Every probably four or five times a year they run these sales and that they basically clearance out half their board game stock. And I'm guessing it's just because they contract with these companies and they want to bring in new stock and they don't sell enough of the old stock, but they're basically selling it off for cost. And so you can get fifty percent off minimum on everything. And then a lot of the times, if you're lucky, you can get a lot of stuff for 75% off. I've never seen a board game left over for 2 bucks, but it's theoretically possible. Probably the best deal I got in the last year was a copy of Trajan at 75% off. There have been a few other good ones, too, but it's the thing about that of course is that it's whatever games they happen to have on sale so if you want specific games barnes and Noble's not necessarily a way to do it other ways you can get some pretty good deals miniature market and cool stuff hold sales usually around the holidays both of them will hold their black friday sales and again it's limited which games you can get but there's a lot of pretty recent stuff in there usually and those ones are already 40% off, so tack on another 5 to 10% off, sometimes more, and you're getting games for half off, plus free shipping, which is never shabby. And then they both have point systems too, so you can rack up the points and use those to save even more money on the online games. You're not going to see a ton of deals in your like friendly local game store, but there are a few things you can do. I don't know, but what about you guys? What are you doing to save money on games?
1: One of the big things you can do... Is you know not duplicate titles that you have. So so if I see that my buddy has Alien Frontiers that I, that I play with all the time, I'm not going to go buy my own copy because anytime I want, I could just be like, hey, let's play Alien Frontiers. And so having a group of friends and not duplicating titles, you can you can get a pretty good game collection mm-hmm. and and not having to have every title. My favorite way would definitely be I look through the auctions. Of used games on Board Game Geek, there's an area so go all the way to the bottom and the right. There's marketplace, and it's you look for like Geek Bay, and then there's users every day that are auctioning their games because they bought too many games and they're having storage problems, and their spouse is mad at them, and they want to buy more games. They need space. <laughs> Cull their collections, and you can get some good deals, but you gotta you gotta be really patient because there's. There are people that are overpaying for things, and there's a, there's a different way to look at auctions. There's like an auction aggregator, which is a, a different way to look at auctions on Board Game Geek. If you're patient and you keep your eye on it, you can get some significantly discounted used games that, that are awesome and, and hard to find games as well.
0: Sure. And I, I would kind of add to that, too, as far as Board Game Geek is concerned. Probably about at least once a day, usually in the morning, I check Board Game Geek and I drop all the way down, all the way to the right. It's the buy and selling section. So our community is outstanding as far as kind of alerting people to sales. So as Anthony said, the Barnes & Noble sales is always alerted there long before it actually hits the stores. Sometimes Amazon has some outstanding deals. There's also Mentor Market and Cool Stuff. As Anthony says, they do their deal of the day which tends to be like 50% off. But once again, it just happens to be on a random board game. But sometimes it's a good game. And then you can kind of put together an order that reaches their $100 limit so that you get free shipping. And in that case, I highly recommend, as Dave was saying, having a gamer group is going to save you more money than anything you could possibly imagine because now you can jump in with other people and put together an order. And we've done this plenty of times. You're able to save the shipping. You're able to get the big deals and not have to kind of put a lot of filler stuff in there just to kind of you know, round it out. I would also recommend – now, we talked about this previously too – auctions at conventions because sometimes whether it's a charity auction like we run with our Extra Life event or it's at a particular convention that happens to be used games that are up for sale, auctions are a really great way to kind of pick something up in person if you could get it at that right price. So we were able to pick up some games recently. And in addition to that, I would just say, it hurts me sometimes. I'm going to be honest with you. You're probably like me. You you cherish your games. You protect your games. And But you know what? Sometimes the dent and dings collection of games that people pass up on because maybe they have a damage box or something scraped. And it does bug me. But sometimes you open that box and you find an unpunched game and it's a rare treasure, and now you're getting it at 50, 60, 70% off, and it's well worth it.
1: Yeah, I'd like to add uh, one more thing that I, I left out. And, and that's a good point, by the way, the dents and things. But, um, you, like, trading games, I think, might be even more fun than the auction. Sure. Because, like, like, if you have a game and, and you're not playing it so much anymore, there's a way you can go into Board Game Geek. And, you know, if you have all of your games uh, put into your your database on your profile, you can click boxes for, like, I, I'm looking to trade the game. And then you go on a page for a game that you really want, and you can click Find Trade Matches. And
0: mm-hmm. the computer
1: automatically, like, will list, like, 10, 20 people that are looking to trade the game you want. And you, you email them and offer them trades. When you strike an accord, parties are want to trade trade away this game. You're not playing anymore, and then you get something you're excited about. That's awesome, and you're not paying out new money at all, like like sure. an auction where you're paying your cash. You're, you're just getting rid of a game you're not playing anymore. You are just paying shipping. That that's a lot of fun.
0: Board game geek is well known for their math trades. So you could put up a game up for trade, and you want some other game, and they work out the mathematics where you go to a convention and you hand your game over over to some other person. And they're they don't have your game, but some other person does so you trade to them, which trades to them, which trades to somebody else and they trade to someone else and then someone else and someone else, and then somehow you get the game that you want and really in the end, that's all that matters yeah it's <laughs> like a fetch quest in an RPG <laughs> it's true.
1: Have you guys ever done a math trade like i'm I'm actually want to try one one day, but I haven't done it yet it it's a little it looks a little bit it's a little bit has a little bit of barrier to entry to it It's oh, yeah. a little bit complicated to set it up at first. But then once you've done it like once or twice, then it's not so bad. But it looks like a, a fun way to trade games for sure.
0: Yeah, I think it takes a little time because usually it's based around going to a convention and trying to find the, the particular person that you're meant to trade with or at least no, that you're handling your game over with.
1: This Well, those are the no-ship um, mass trades, but there's yeah. also ones with, with shipping. and you just it's, It'll be like continental United States or Europe or, or what have you. And yeah. they'll have a, that mass trade. I've seen them.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think also, like Anthony said, you're usually not going to find big deals at your friendly local game store. But Anthony and I have been lucky a couple of times, and, I, and I, I think that's true about you too, Dave, where sometimes they're selling a game, they're just trying to get it off the shelves, or there's a 50% off sale because the game has collected dust. So it's worth your time and effort to just check with your local game stores, and sometimes they're just getting rid of things, and you can kind of pick it up.
3: Yeah, I mean especially like small little problems with something might make it a lot cheaper. I know when we were at um Dexcon, Chris, you got a good deal on a pretty big game just because there was no shrink wrap on it. Right? Rune
0: Wars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got Rune Wars for fifty percent off. It didn't have the shrink wrap on it. Someone must have like scraped the wrap or something and They were selling the game for 50% off, so that was outstanding.
1: I I mean, I would just add to that, like, one of my favorite things to do when I go shopping in local game stores, places, they'll just have games that'll sit on the shelf for, like, 10 years, and, like, they'll just never, it'll just be on the shelf. So I love going to new game stores that I haven't been to before, and hopefully ones that have been around a long time. And I'm always looking for, like, deep out-of-print titles that they're selling for MSRP, that if you try to buy like, that, that are scarce and hard to get.
0: Uh-huh. And,
1: and if you're, you're looking for something that's out of print and for a long time and you have to pay over $100 for it, and boom, it's sitting on the shelf and it's, like, $35, I, I just
0: love that. Yeah. And as we talked about before, like, Dexcon 18, if you haven't been to a convention, no matter how small it may be, it's more than likely going to have a game library. And if you haven't seen a game library, it's going to blow your mind because you walk in... And here's this room of tables and here's a wall full of games and you're like, I've died, right? This is this is what happens, right? <laughs> because it has all these games that I can play and all I have to do is give, give them my ID for a little while and I can play the game and there's no cost. So that's outstanding. There's Gamer Cafes, which are great. There's Meetup.com, which we talked about previously. Join a gaming group. If you don't have your own group of gamer friends, join a gaming group because you go to a meetup – And you sit down, and here's four or five random people, and I'm guaranteeing you there's going to be something you haven't played. They'll sit down, they'll teach you, and you haven't had to purchase anything at all.
3: Yeah, and that's a huge way to save money is play it before you buy it. Oh, sure. Yeah. I have way too many games that I've purchased (laughs) because they look so Cool. And then they were so disappointing. So see,
1: so that's that's when you trade it away and get something else. Do want to get?
3: I know. I'm sitting here looking at the math trade thread for GenCon and trying to see if I could figure this out in the seven days I have until the deadline. <laughs> um, it's pretty complicated.
1: Yeah. The trick is you you have to look at what people already have posted and then. You have to select things that you would uh, agree to, t- to take in exchange for your game. Or I guess what people do is they first they throw all their games and make them available. But then they don't officially get traded unless you go through all of the games and you find stuff that you really want. And then you agree. There's like this huge rubric of things you can check if you agree to trade it for for, the, for A, B, C, D, or, and so on. It works like that, I believe.
3: This feels like a great way to use my lunchtime or more <laughs> one of
1: these times.
3: Sure. Am I working? Yeah, I'm working. No big deal. Don't look at my computer.
0: <laughs> and and shameless plug here, too. One of the best ways, and I know because we're here, is to consistently listen to our podcast. We do acquisition disorders typically each and every week to let you know what new games are coming out what to keep an eye out for we do at the tables so we'll let you know what a first play or a hundredth play might be like for you and see if it's a game you like and especially our feature reviews if you like blank try these games so as you get more into the mechanics and the designers there are some games that work better than others there are certain games that kind of meet the need so you don't have to buy four or five auction games unless you really love auction games maybe there's one or two games that kind of scratch that itch and you can just build a diversity of games that kind of hit certain mechanics so a lot of ways the trades the online services the dents and dings sometimes the big box stores that don't know what they're selling and sometimes the small groups that bring together a great collection so that you can play for free There is a multitude of ways to kind of get a gaming collection in your hands, get those games to the table. And honestly, you'd be surprised. If you have friends that are gamers, tell them to post their games on BoardGameGeek so that you can take a look at them and ask if they can bring certain games or those meetup groups. Let people know what you're looking to play. And honestly, we have a great, great community. And whether it's trading or playing or going to the convention, There's always somebody willing to teach you, bring you a game, and kind of engage in that kind of fun activity. So that's our feature review for this week. And now, our final round. Drew, what do you have for us this week? I am back.
2: I mean, I spent the last half hour trying to rack my brain for a really good final round for you guys.
0: Okay, what do you Uh, got?
2: We're right in the middle of Uh Comic-Con. And a couple weeks from now, Gen Con is going to be coming up. You know, one of the big things of Comic-Con is the cosplay. There, It's huge there. Everybody shows up, it seems, in, in costume. What if Gen Con was just as heavily in the cosplay as Comic-Con was? Then we would all show up as our favorite or as an interesting board game character. So, for final round is, what character would you go as? And I'll tell you, Stratego was one of my early games I loved. And I thought I would go as the general from Stratego because the general's number one. He he gets to kick everybody else's, you know. I'd have to watch out for the spy sneaking up on me, of course. But but I've got the beard now with the general, and I'd love to wear one of those big Napoleonic hats strutting around there. That's my character. How about you guys?
0: Well, Drew, if you did that, you would have to walk backwards the entire time (laughs) so that we wouldn't know that you were the general until the last second.
2: I'd have to face away from everybody.
0: That's right. (laughs) And what's Drew as? Well, we don't know. But if you tap his shoulder and turn him around, you'll find out. Might be bad for you. I'm just saying. Cool. All right. So I'm going to go with something a little different. And I'm going to go with King of New York. Now, King of Tokyo had some really interesting monsters. But King of New York really brought some new interesting designs to play. And the most dramatic, different, unique, individual monster that I've seen in this – entire set is captain fish yeah (laughs) now if you haven't seen captain fish before it's a little hard to explain but captain fish is a gigantic monster or at least it seems he's a gigantic diving suit he's got chains wrapped up on one of his forearms and down the chain is a I would guess it would be like a cruise ship or something, a big ship that's tied to it that he's using to flare around and knock down the city. Now, that's not the, the really kind of twisted part of it. Inside the helmet of this gigantic diver is water and a whale. <laughs> so Captain Fish is actually a whale wearing a captain's hat. He's got a – looks like a corn cob pipe. And he's got a I guess a whaling scar down his nose or his face. And he's just pretty epic and pretty cool and surprising. And if I could pull it off, that would be my costume.
2: God, if you could pull it off, I would give you the award for best costume.
0: Nice. Damn. <laughs> Captain Fish. <laughs> Which is ironic because whales aren't fish, they're mammals, but okay. How about you, Anthony?
3: Uh, so mine's not nearly as exciting or terrifying to young children, but...
0: (laughs) Captain Fish is a friend to children. (laughs) (laughs) Camera is a friend to children.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God, my son would cry. Um, but for me, one of the... I always wanted to know the story of that guy turning the knob on the power grid cover. (laughs) So, (laughs) I'm thinking white lab coat and a clipboard, and whether I, I carry around a knob with me or not... Uh, it's, it, it'll tell the story of what I'm supposed to be. Alternately, there's the lazy guy on the deluxe cover. who's just <laughs> taking a nap at the board, spilling coffee on everything. There you um, go. But I do, I do like the knob guy
2: better.
0: The knob you guy.
2: Could, you could go all, go around all the light panels and, and with your clipboard and study the light panels and flick the switches. And... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've already
3: got the glasses. I'm set. Oh, he doesn't even
2: have glasses. See, I'd have to take them off, then. But...
0: You could oh. walk around with uh, Jamie Stegmeyer's you know, eventual treasure chest with all the different components in it. So all the different fuel sources you can carry with you. Yeah, oh, I could make
3: a man. necklace. Yeah.
0: <laughs> or you could carry a giant drum of nuclear waste. That would work too, you know. That's everyone, <laughs> true. It's everyone's true. fine with that. <laughs> it would draw
2: attention. <laughs> it would. On little wheels behind you like uh, Captain Fish has his
1: uh, little boat. There you go.
0: All right, Dave, what about you?
1: I would totally dress up as the Portuguese Explorer on the cover of Goa.
0: There you go. I oh, love that guy.
1: Man. Wow, that's a cool costume.
0: <laughs> that would be nice. He's such a hipster, that guy too. You, you know he's just like too cool to be on the cover. Like the, the look on his yeah, face is like, oh, you're back. Okay, fine. <laughs> oh, man. And then Dave, you could walk around with a spice rack. Yeah, that, would work. All that right.
2: would work. That is our final round for today.
0: Okay, that sounds great. So that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek. And if you can, please check out our Patreon account. We would really use your support. Until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Drew. This is Dave. And we will budget for you to have a seat at the table no matter how expensive it may be.